Hey everyone, Avi here. With Passover upon us, we thought we'd do something special to celebrate for this episode. We're breaking from our usual format to hear memories and thoughts from Canadian Jews from coast to coast. You'll hear from Evan Solomon, Lisa Rubin, Zach Hyman, Yara Sachs, Bob Ray, and many more, starting with Ben Langer, a doctor in Northern Ontario. So my name's uh, Ben Langer. I'm coming to you from Sioux Lookout, Ontario, which is the, the other Sioux. People say the Sioux and they mean Sault Ste. Marie, but it's about twice as far as Sault Ste. Marie. I'm a family doctor, so I spend three weeks a month in Sioux Lookout doing various work clinic, a lot of obstetrics, some C-sections. And then one week a month I fly to Sachiko Lake First Nation, which is another hour flight on a little six-seater north of about 550 people on reserve. So I imagine there's not a lot of Jews up there. That was, that was my assumption. That was my family's assumption. And when my, when my mother obviously asked me, so are there any Jews in Sioux Lookout? I said, well, actually, my next-door neighbor is a, is a man named Benji Goldstein. Wow, okay. Next door to him, Aaron Rothstein. One door down, Dan Shalensky. <laughs> we could have had a, a law firm. Now, the reason why you're with us is that you had a story you told our producer about gefilte fish? So I've, I've never made um, gefilte fish before, um, but I think that this year is going to be the year because when I was up in Sachigo this last trip and one of my patients said, hey, you want to go ice fishing? And uh, I'm a little bit hesitant about ice fishing. I'm actually vegan <laughs> most of the time, except for my uh, the challah every Shabbat. Um, and, and when I'm offered wild food in, in Sachigo, I don't feel it's, it's right to turn that down. So it's a great experience going out on the lake with, with some folks up there. They're a wonderful family named the Bartmans. They were just in a CBC story. So I said, yes, I'll, I'll go. So uh, I'm waiting outside the nursing station for them to pick me up. I'm assuming I'm going to ride on the back of somebody's snowmobile. And uh, Riley, uh, my friend who comes to pick me up, is on one snowmobile. His, his girlfriend's on the other. She gets off hers, gets on his, and they start driving off, say, okay, follow me. And I said, Riley, Riley, I, I've never driven a snowmobile before. <laughs> He's like, oh, it's easy. Just, you know, one, one hand on the throttle, that's the brake. And yeah, it's easy. Just follow me. And so I shakily get on and I'm driving the snowmobile. I think it's like a bike. and I'm trying to use my body, but that actually turns it the other way. <laughs> and we get out on the open ice. It's pretty warm that day. There's slush everywhere. I realize you have to accelerate into the slush. I'm kind of coasting over these slush piles and veering off all over the side. We finally get to the ice, uh, where the ice fishing is. And uh, there's a hole for me. There's a fishing rod for me. Riley hands me a minnow. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> put, it on the, put it on the hook um, and, uh, and wait. And I'm sitting there, you know, there's amazing chit-chat. It's a dry community, so, you know, it's sober, wonderful jokes about how the fish you just caught is barely bigger than the minnow on your <laughs> hook. And so I'm sitting there hoping I don't catch a fish because I don't want to kill it. <laughs> but I do, you know, we end up, as a group, you know, there's about uh, eight or nine of us. We, we catch between 30, 35 walleye or pickerel. And those are white fish, and those are mm -hmm. gefilte fish fish. And I'm thinking, man, this is, you know, this is my opportunity to introduce gefilte fish to, <laughs> to Sachigo Lake. Um, and so I start talking about Passover and gefilte fish. And the people up there don't have almost any um, experience with the Jews or Jewish holidays. And, and they're fascinated by what we do with fish. <laughs> um, you know, most of the time they fillet it, they, they bread it, fry it, or, or you know, boil it. 
and uh, you know, talking about eggs and matzah meal and <laughs> brining, and, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I end up I end up catching a couple fish. I am shaking as I'm holding them, and but I really it brings me to this whole you know sacrifice and, and Passover was a sacrificial holiday, mm-hmm. and bringing me to the point of I you know it's real. It's a holding a living creature in front of you, and and uh, you know I break its neck. And there's blood that goes on the, the red blood, like a, like a, a, you know, spaghetti Western movie. There's, you know, red blood on the white snow. And, well, when and, you come uh, to think about it, the lamb was the, uh, one of the deities of the Egyptians. And our job was to break its neck to uh, show ownership on it and to say that this is a difficult thing, but we, uh, we are capable of doing this. There's yeah. a lot of similarities to what just happened there. Yeah, and so, I'm a, you know, vegan urban Jewish boy <laughs> up on, uh, you know, a, a lake near Hudson's Bay, you know, breaking a, a fish's neck and thinking about, you know, Passover and sacrifice. And, and I'm, you know, I'm talking about this with the, with the group and, and they get kind of interested and excited about the, about the idea and the gefilte fish. And I tell, talk to them about how big my family Seder is and how gefilte fish is like, you know, a huge thing. And, and uh, my booby makes it and and uh, and so they they say, do you want some fish to take home? And I was like, yeah, I would I would love some. That would be amazing to kind of combine my life here and my my life in in Toronto. And and uh, so yeah, you know, give me a little bit. I'll try. I'll try a little bit to you know make a, a test batch or whatever. And maybe next year they bring me a northern store bag. It's kind of the grocery store in these remote communities mm-hmm. um, with thirteen pounds. <laughs> <laughs> of, of frozen pickerel fillets <laughs> to make enough gefilte fish for my whole family. <laughs> wow. And so uh, that uh, is the intersection right there of Canada, of real, you know, almost authentic Canada of the land and, uh, and the immigrant story of Jews making gefilte fish in their bathtubs with, you know, <laughs> locally caught um, fish. And uh, hopefully that Passover experience will extend beyond this year's Passover yeah. um, and beyond. Yeah, I'm hoping to bring them up, uh, bring them up a sample to see if they <laughs> see if they think they made a mistake. <laughs> well, I hope you follow up with us and let us know what they think. I will. Thanks so much, Abby. And with that, welcome to the Bozier Chai Seder. I'm Avi Feigold with Alana Zakon and David Sklar all together in Montreal. What? For the first time ever. <laughs> this is like epic. Epic. I have, epic. I have n- I've never seen both of you together in the same room at the same time. I have never been face-to-face with you, David. Mm-hmm. I've been face-to-face with you, Alana. A couple times. Twice, yeah, yeah maybe. A couple times. Less than five minutes total. We've now determined that David is the tallest of the three of us. Yes, Correct. That's very true. But Abby is the best dressed, I would say, of this evening. On today's show, we will share our thoughts and stories of the Seder as we hear from folks across the country about their Seders. Let's kick things off with a voice that may be familiar to Bonjour High listeners, Melissa Lansman. I'm Melissa Lansman. I'm Thornhill's Member of Parliament, and most notably, I'm a former host of Bonjour High. I love the story of Passover. 
I love that it commemorates the liberation of Israelites from enslavement in ancient Egypt. I love the strength of the Jewish people, the triumph of good over evil. I love the story of Exodus. For those who know me, and many do, know that I don't have a very long attention span, but I can sit through a Seder and I can love every single word. It gives me a time to reflect on the many blessings that we enjoy here in Canada as Canadians. Uh, and it reminds us that those around the world are still struggling to break free from the bonds of tyranny. I'm reminded about the remarkable heights that our Canadian Jewish community has taken uh, us to and, and has given to the world. And this is a country that's anchored in the ideals of freedom, of democracy, of rule of law. And that story comes from Exodus. So the, to the entire Jewish community, I wish you a Chag Sameach. I really appreciate Bonjour Chai giving me this opportunity to talk about Passover because really in Judaism, it is my favorite holiday. It's a holiday that for me is much less about prayer and contemplation than it is a reflection of the importance of freedom and the importance of getting together with your family and enjoying one another's company and loving each other. As I was growing up, I was lucky enough to have two really different but important seders. The first night was always at my cousin Maxine's house, my father's cousin. In tradition, Maxine's seder was the seder of our Nimten great-grandparents that passed down from generation to generation. And as the eldest granddaughter, she carried on that legacy. It's a seder that's been going on for now over 125 years in Montreal. And it's something that is incredibly precious. It went longer than my second Seder, but it was with large groups of extended family, including my paternal grandparents, my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, and it was wonderful. And the second Seder was at my father's sister, my, my Aunt Anne's house. And that was also a wonderful Seder with my cousins, my aunt and uncle, my grandparents, my parents, my brother, and friends. And it brought people every year that were different to the table. And both of these seders, which, you know, are just emblematic of my childhood, are things that I will never forget. It always reminds me each and every year, no matter who I'm celebrating with, that Passover is a holiday of friends, of family, and of love. Well, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm married to Arlene, um, and before we were married, we I would go to her family seders and then after we kept it up and obviously and then went through many 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 different seders events that some uh, some very happy some very sad and, and and but always with a sense of the newcomers arriving and for us what's been wonderful has been uh, in the last couple of years we have grandchildren so for the first time we have uh, little ones coming every year little big getting slightly bigger and always joining us at the table and always asking the questions and singing the songs. We, we love to sing the songs. Um, we love to connect up the story with many, many other stories of, of liberation and freedom. Uh, and I think for me, and what's so poignant about the, about the, the evening is that we think of those who um, are still strangers in, in, in the world and the need for us to be thinking about all of them at this time. So for all the work I've been doing with refugees, all the work I've been doing on human rights over the years, I, I think Passover is one of the most meaningful events in our, in, in, in our family life, but it's one of the most meaningful events for, 
for me as a as a person. I think that's a wonderful a wonderful thing to be able to share, and I'm delighted that uh, we're we're able to able to join in again this year. My memories of Pesach. <laughs> They're absolutely intertwined with remembering seders at my grandparents' home on our Moshav in Avenue Huda in Israel. It was always lively and hectic. I'm one of 13 grandchildren, a really large family, and my safta would make her dining room table expand to include everyone, extended family, neighbors. It was literally Klal Israel at the dinner table. And amidst all of that noise, I remember my Saba, who would try always to teach us something beyond the Haggadah text, he would sit around at the head of the table, watching the chaos with a smile, and would be known to murmur from time to time, my shoshelets, my generations. He was always in awe of what it meant to have not only been part of the creation of the modern state of Israel, but what its creation had meant personally for the survival of his family and the hope that it gave to him and to us. I'm a bit of a Talmud geek, I will say that, and I'm reminded of a teaching from the Talmud Yerushalmi where Rabbi Tarfun suggests that an additional cup of wine should be consumed to reflect a fifth promise. I will bring you to the land that I promised to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. According to many commentators, this is how we came to have the Kos Eliyahu, the fifth cup, a reflection of hope for the Geula, or redemption, and return to Eretz Israel. I recently came across a teaching by local favorite Rabbi Baruch Friedman Kohl, who explored this idea of a fifth cup and sharing that when the state of Israel was established in 1948, Rabbi Menachem Kasher unsuccessfully proposed that after Israeli independence, we should consume that fifth cup. And while it didn't really catch on, Rabbi Michal Marmer in 2007 also suggested that we look at the cups of wine at the Seder as different Jewish perspectives on our contemporary life. Maybe we could look at the fifth cup as taking on the role of a modern Israel. It's a unifying force in our communities and around the world, just as much as it is for me personally, an anchor and a connection to the four generations of my modern family in Israel and also here in Toronto. Chag Pesach Sameach, everyone. Hi, my name is Erwin Kotler. I'm delighted to participate in this Passover uh, celebration. Passover has always been my favorite holiday a holiday where we celebrate family and, and freedom with the Seder as metaphor and message, a holiday of remembrance and redemption of Zachor as an organizing idiom, a holiday of a celebration of Jewish values and universal values, the value with respect to remember that you too were a stranger uh, in Egypt, a holiday that celebrates women's rights, that b'schut nashim tzikaniyot, as a result of righteous women, the Jewish people were liberated from Egypt, a holiday which celebrates commitments uh, to social justice, and finally a holiday that celebrates Jewish peoplehood, of the indigeneity of a Jewish people in its indigenous homeland, of the Jewish people as a prototypical indigenous people, a people that still inhabits the same land, embraces the same religion, studies the same indigenous Torah, observes the same indigenous traditions like Passover, hearkens to the same indigenous prophets, speaks the same indigenous language, Hebrew, and bears the same indigenous name, Israel, as we did 3,500 years ago. A celebration of Jewish values, of universal values, of the pursuit of justice for the benefit of humankind as a whole. Thank you. That was Melissa Lansman, followed by her Ottawa colleagues, Anthony Housefather, Yara Sachs, Bob Ray, and Erwin Collar.
Seems like the politicians care about family mm-hmm. and care about land. Land? I mean, Israel, the, ah. the, the connection, the idea that we are connected to this land and that Israel, that Passover is about our connection to this promised land. Right. I mean, there were also three Zionist politicians. I'm sure that it contributed. But yes, that I'm is true. Not, I'm not I, casting that, aspersions. No, that wasn't a dispersion. <laughs> that, was just, that was just a fact. What's, um, how does land and how does family connect you guys to the Seder? I mean, family, very obviously. I think the Seder, if I have any memories about the Seder, it's always directly related to my family itself. I think I remember the first, I must have been in grade one where I, I think I went to, I was at Solomon Chector and we had to learn our lines and recite. And I remember I was given this very important line that I was supposed to take home with me. And I was about, I was very eager, this like young six-year-old actor is getting around and it comes to my part and everyone turns eyes right onto David to get ready for his part. And I get so stage fright. I just break down in tears and run right <laughs> off away from the Seder table. That was, I think, my first memory. What was your line? I don't even remember it. <laughs> I, oh, come on. I can't even remember Another it. Actor, I was, David. <laughs> it was some blessing. I, it wasn't the four questions or anything like that. But I just remember it felt so scary. Like, you know, 12 people staring down at this little six-year-old kid. It freaked me out and I ran away to cry. They oh, moved on. Unbelievable. I know. What was your Seder lines, Alana? Lines. We read everything at the exact same time. We, there were no lines in my family. We've literally done the Seder the same way for like my entire life and it will never change while my grandfather's still here. So like there's no four questions for the small the, oh, the child? Oh yeah, the four questions, but I'm the eldest. So I didn't do the, I didn't do the four you questions. You must have done it at least once. When I was one, I have a younger cousin who's like six months younger than me. Oh, and then after that, there's fun. another brother and then a cousin and this. I literally don't think I've ever done it except for in school. That's why you became an actor, because there was no way that you could have a highlight during the Seder. Yeah. So you're like, I'm going to do it <laughs> on stage for the rest of the year. I did love a lot of the songs that we learned in school. Like the, the song about the four sons was always really fun. Like, mm-hmm. said the father to his children. But... Nope, no, no, no. Keep singing. Can you I don't please know this? explain the law? All the customs of the Seder. Can you please explain the cause? <laughs> it goes on and on. There's a lot of verses. I still remember it. It was amazing. I'm not stopping you. <laughs> I would have to look up the rest of the lyrics, but that was a big highlight. I, For me, I like the singing the most. Like, mm-hmm. I get really, yeah. really upset when I go to a Seder where people skip tunes. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's a song. We are going back. We're repeating this, and we're doing it in melody. You sound like my mother. Yes, absolutely. It's all about the singing it's for her. It's all about the singing, and I feel like, yeah, the, the rest of it, we kind of, like, just go through quickly, like... My dad used to try to be like, okay, everyone, let's stop and talk about it, which I really appreciated. But I don't think of the other people at my Seder like that. They were like, no, 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 we want to just keep going and get to the meal. And then, you know, all the like less religious people that came would like <laughs> leave after this, the meal and then everyone else would stay till the end. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think it's important to know your audience and you yeah. guys don't, I don't have to explain that to you guys, right? You're actors. Right? What do you do when you're facing an audience that is... I wasn't going to say hostile, but less than receptive. Well, apparently I cry and run away into a corner. That's that's my go-to thing. Is this what you do to this day? I think it's probably my, my internal panic motion is if I have a hostile audience, I just I just start crying. And probably. this is why you're not in a Hallmark movie yet. Right? <laughs> Jake Epstein, on the other hand, he promised to be a Passover okay. movie. It's supposed to come now. I mean, that's a hard question because in like most shows, you have lines. It's not like you're doing stand-up and you're like, okay, how do I like rejig it? Like you have to keep doing the show. So it's just one of those nights that you just, you get through and then you just kind of keep hoping the audience will lighten up. But that's, 
to me, that's the beauty of the Seder is that it's a combination of lines that are scripted mm -hmm. by these rabbis from about 2000 years ago. But it's also improv and it's also recognizing that you have an audience in front of you yeah. and asking yourself, how do I listen to the people in front of me and say, hey, I'd like to keep going for another two hours, but the audience is clearly flagging. And so I've got to do something. Yeah. We got to serve that. them food. That's that's what yeah. keeps them coming. Well, that's for where sure. you pull up those little mini marshmallows and throw them Absolutely. at people the to keep them away. Marshmallows work. It's the we've talked about the uh the, the carpas course with all of the different vegetables and all the different dips. So all of those things are important. That could be a good segue into one of the people who gave us a little clip about a vegan Seder because I have never heard of a Seder plate that looks like this. Excellent. Let us play Rabbi Robin Fryer-Bodson. I am Rabbi Robin Fryer-Bodson. I'm one of the rabbis at Bethsedic Congregation in Toronto. So a vegan Seder is a little bit different than a typical Seder. We're not going to have a shank bone on our Seder plate, but we've done different things in different years. We've tried a beet, and we've also tried a toy plastic bone to symbolize the bone. We also don't use an egg. I have a beautiful picture of an egg <laughs> that I've been using for a few years. It's stuck in with the rest of my Pesach files, and we put that on the Seder plate. We don't do chicken soup. We do a vegetable soup, and we cook with squash, and we cook with quinoa, and our main source of protein at Pesach, at the Seder anyways, is nuts. We have a delicious chopped liver, a mock chopped liver recipe that we got from PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I don't agree with most of what they do, but I like their chopped liver, so we make that. The recipe that's there, if you look for it on their website, we usually quadruple it. And we eat it throughout the holiday. We usually make it before the Seders, and then we make it again for the last two days. We eat a lot of avocado. And we use quinoa savory way. We'll use quinoa like a tabbouleh. We use a lot of mushrooms. Portobello mushrooms are really key for us. And we also make efforts to include as many colors as we can. So we've posted pictures before on social media of what our fridge looks like, you know, two days before Pesach. And it's basically all vegetables and fruit. So the apple is our friend. Arugula is our friend. But really the secret for making sure that people don't miss the brisket is to use a lot of fresh herbs. So whether it's cilantro or whether it's dill or whether it's thyme, um, that really helps us get to where we're going. Another big secret is that sweet potatoes are your friend. They're also hearty. And uh, those are some of the ways we, we cook to have a vegan Seder. We make sure that we let our guests know ahead of time what they're expecting though. But considering people would rather have the company, um, it usually works pretty well. Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. I host Yehopetzville on CJN Podcast Network. I think we should start calling it that. I like the sound of that. All right. Here's the thing on Passover. First of all, it's a culture clash for me. Married to an Ashkenazi, I'm Sephardic. Grew up at Seder's where there were Sephardic and Ashkenazi people. And the defining moment... The thing that really divided us instead of bringing us together was Dayenu. Because I had learned in Hebrew school with the Ashkenazi kids, die, Dayenu, die, Dayenu. And that's so not what we do. So here's how we sound. Ilunatananu etatora, Dayenu. Ilunatananu etatora, Velonatananu et mamona, Dayenu. Okay, as you can see, one sounds like a German nursery rhyme, and the other one sounds like where I'm from, the Arab and North African world. 
so what would happen is we do both. We'd start with the Moroccan one, and then we'd do the uh, Ashkenazi one. And the kids love the Ashkenazi one. They do not love the Sephardic one. It's, it's a bit too grim. So that's, that's always that. And by the way, please don't keep telling Sephardic people that, well, you get to eat rice. We don't even eat the rice, okay? Like, it's, it's not a bonus we care about. It's not for us. Um, lastly, I will say that what I concentrate the most on throughout my life and when I'm counseling people in spiritual counseling is that the, the Pharaoh is not an external. It's certainly not Yul Brenner, but it's not an external. It's, we all have pharaohs that we create that enslave us into things we think we're supposed to be or do. And the idea of freedom sounds good, but is much harder to attain than we think. Because if you follow the Exodus story to the end of the, the road with Moses, it is a, a, a study and people not being able to handle their own freedom. So I think it's important when we think about Passover that we think about how do we find ways to enslave ourselves in this life and that there is an internal pharaoh that we must banish and we have to take a leap of faith into freedom and the responsibilities that come with it. Hag Pesach Sameach. Shalom, my name is Rivka Campbell, a.k.a. Rivkush. As a Jew of Jamaican descent, there is one song that for me symbolizes Passover. And that is the song, Redemption Song by Bob Marley. In particular, the line that I find most powerful is the line that says, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. So this is a song that I will play once, twice, three, four times during the week of Passover. Also, one of the things that I traditionally do is I make sure that at my Seder table, there are foods that represent my heritage. So you will see at my table, rice and peas. Yes, I said it, rice and peas, and also something called Bami. And my challenge to you, look up Bami and perhaps have it one year at your Passover Seder to celebrate the rich heritage of us as a Jewish people as we get together universally during this special time of year. Hag Pesach Sameach from Rifkush. Hi, I'm Ellen Besner, the host of the CJN Daily Podcast. My favorite part of Passover is using a special fish-shaped gurgling pitcher to pour the red wine. It's literally a pitcher, a porcelain pitcher that's shaped like a fish standing on its tail, and when you pour wine out of it, the jug talks. Well, it actually gurgles. The tradition started at Seder's at my late grandparents' house in Ottawa. They were Abe and Sadie Leaf, and their pitcher was a green painted speckled fish, and all the kids loved waiting for the sound when the wine came out. When I got married and I started making my own satyrs, my mother wanted each of her girls to have their own fish jugs so we would continue the tradition. And so she bought one for me and another one for my sister, Brenda. Our fish jug has delighted my kids and our whole extended family and friends for years. My youngest son brought it for a Hebrew school show and tell project. And my older son, who's a physicist, a few months ago decided to study how this gurgling noise actually is created. And there's a YouTube video about it where a scientist cuts the jug in half and shows you how the sound comes out. So mystery solved and it's all physics. A few years ago, 
I was shopping in Niagara on the lake with my friend Amy and my niece Naomi. And I was so excited because we found the local craft store where they were selling these fish gluggle jugs. So of course I had to buy two, one for each of my sons and they got different colors, of course. And although my sons don't yet make satyrs themselves, I hope they'll use them one day in their own families. After my grandmother died, my grandfather used to come to my satyrs in Richmond Hill, Ontario, and he always had pride of place at our table. Papa died 15 years ago, but for me, holding this fish decanter at my satyrs instantly makes me feel as if I'm holding my Papa's hand and that somehow he's still smiling along with everyone when that fish starts to talk. <laughs> so here's what the fish jug sounds like. Happy Passover to all of you from me, my husband, John Friedland, and our sons, Alex and Evan, and the extended Besner Friedland family. Hey, we're the Menchwarmers here to share with you some of our Passover stories out here on uh, the opening week of baseball season, close to the playoffs of NBA and NHL, and, you know, some notable Jewish holidays in our life. We just completed our Baseball Seder episode, which will be coming to you shortly, but we'd also like to tell you why Passover is meaningful to us. Uh, well, I, I love Passover. Uh, I love getting together with the family and doing the Seder, but I should say that as a vegetarian, it's it's one of the harder uh, holidays for me in terms of in terms of eating. All there really is is matzah and hard-boiled eggs most of the time. Even for people who try to be very inclusive of my uh, my, my dietary restrictions, which my family is, it's it's a tough one. Um, so I gotta say I'm very I'm very grateful to the embrace of Kitniyot for that's that's continuing over the last few years. I know it's not traditional uh, for some people, but uh, bringing the Kitniyot has has really been uh, a boon to to my Passover the last few years. Passover is, is a big deal in our house. My wife suffers from celiac disease and autoimmune disorder, which uh, affects the way that your body processes gluten. So most of her diet year round looks a lot like Passover. There's very little bread for a long time. There was no corn. There was no rice. Um, and that, then her body healed a bit and she could eat that stuff, eat the kidney oat. But, you know, sort of a dry cracker with stuff on it is so, is kind of all she can eat when it comes to snacking um, or just general foods that don't ever touch flour or yeast or, or any of those items. Um, so we're really happy to have the world celebrate what is essentially a solidarity week with celiac disease sufferers the year over. Uh, and Passover is important to us for that reason. Gabe, are you doing uh, one or two seders this year? Uh, the plan was to do one, but it seems my sister may indeed have come down with the novel coronavirus um, mm. leading us down to zero. So we'd be virtual once again. I should say uh, just a heads up to anyone who is having a second Seder. Uh, the Toronto Raptors will be playing their first playoff game at 6, at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. Yes. So, uh, you know, find find the stream on your phone and keep it under the table. I, I hope cares. my family, you know, they know about this show. Um, I hope my family can... Uh, listen to me giving notes and jokes into my dictaphone as I watch the game the entire time. So uh, please like and subscribe to our podcast. Chagzmeach, everybody. That was Rabbi Robin Fryer Bodson, followed by Ralph Ben Murgy and our other colleagues from the CJN Podcast Network, Rivka Campbell, Ellen Bessner, and Gabe Pulver and James Hirsch, a.k.a. The Menschwarmers. really interesting the uh, personal enslavement we each have our own pharaoh involved that was that really stood out to me right at the end yeah i you know i think it's one of the highlights that we talk about a lot in our family seder when we have people 
um, sitting around and discussing on Passover. Um, I'm really interested in how the small things make things much bigger, right? Where Robin is talking about, Rabbi Robin is talking about these little things, right? Where she's, how do we make the Seder vegan? Mm. And it's about picture of an egg as opposed to an egg. And Ralph is like, let's deal with the issue of rice or the way in which we sing Dayenu. And it's always these little customs that tend to separate us as opposed to recognize that we're still singing the same Dayenu song from whatever culture we're with. We're still saying the same words or we're still contending with the idea of the egg as opposed to the egg itself. And that these are things that unify us. Mm. And mm. so sometimes we're trapped by our own freedom because we're so free to do everything that it ends up um, hurting us more because we just end up saying, oh, I just want to, you know, do whatever I want. And then that's more problematic than being, you know, recognizing our freedom and being able to work within it. And stuff like that. I think that there's a lot of beauty in the individuality of the Seder, though, because that's what makes mm -hmm. each family distinct. Mm -hmm. it, otherwise, it, you can just go to like any Seder and be all identical. I think it wouldn't be as interesting. Like, I think it's exciting how do you do your Seder? How do you do your Seder? And then you have these little niche things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that personally. Yeah. Should there be any structure? Like, should we, yeah. should like every... Well, the Seder literally is like an order and you follow it. If, if you do it traditionally. If you do it. Should there, yeah. So if we're talking about the Seder itself, is there one thing that you would sort of say, either of you, this must be done at the Seder. If you're going to have a Seder, this is like the one thing you should be doing. I mean, read the Haggadah for me. <laughs> like if you're not reading it, I don't think I could do, I don't think I could be at a Seder where they weren't even using the actual book. I know a lot of people do different versions where maybe they like take like a piece or take their chunk. But for me, like I, I definitely need that <laughs> as, a, as a baseline. Yeah. I mean, I think that the fact that it's been a text and it's a canonical text for so long, I'm okay with the idea that we need to do this. And people ask me, well, how do we make it shorter? I'm always like, well, if we think about the core of the Haggadah as questions and answers, Mm -hmm. You can't go without the questions, right? That the child or the youth or the whoever it is is Or the 36-year-old male child. Whatever like it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and whatever answer, however you define that answer, and it has to make a, a tangible connection to the questions to say that this is the answer to why we do these things. Um, everything else becomes commentary. And while commentary is very important, we want to be able to say that, you know, Let's work within these bounds and to say, these are questions, these are answers, everything else works within that framework. And I like that. I like the idea that, you know, we have different ways of doing things. But and as Ralph pointed out, right, Ashkenazim and Sephardim have very, very different approaches. And if you grow up in a certain community, then that becomes really scary to you to hear another person's community um, and vice versa. And so... The recognition that we have in the 21st century is that, great, we're all part of this vast tapestry of Judaism, mm. um, but to fetishize one culture over another and to say, oh my God, that's so cool that you do that, or in the reverse to say, oh, that's weird and that's like bizarre. Right. Well, then Spartacs need to stop making fun of gefilte fish. Just Absolutely. saying. <laughs> Just saying. Have you ever made some gefilte fish? I have not made it from scratch, but there are many stories about my, my great-grandmother's recipe is still used to this day at our Seder's, but I haven't tried it yet, but I was telling my mom the other day that I think I need to learn. I don't think I'm going to have time this week, maybe next year, because we do a special version um, that has like pepper in it, and there are these 
kind of like ovally big bulbous things. Mm-hmm. So th- they have a very different color than regular gefilte fish and they have much more spice to them um, than like the plain white, which I actually do like a typical gefilte fish also. Call me Ashkenaz all you yeah. want. You've I like tr- it. You've heard the term bageling? No. Oh, come on. No. That rings a bell. Can no. you remind bageling, us? Bageling, like when somebody just randomly says something like remotely Jewish Oh, oh, yeah. As a way to like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm Jewish too, right? Right. It's like, it's like, oh, wouldn't you want a bagel right now? <laughs> Isn't he a schmuck? Is, exactly. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I, I guess that's your way of saying, right. I look Jewish. And so we're going to go down the Jewish road now because you just said schmuck or you just right. said bagel. That, that actually happened to me a few months ago when I was in my fiasco on my way to Florida when I was stuck at like the airport for a yes, thousand yes. hours. And I was talking to this woman and her daughter. And then like an hour later, she said something about like, Oh yeah, and like my bubby or something, and then I was like, oh, "Okay, we get it, we get it." I had like a very prominent high necklace, so that that helped. <laughs> she picked you out. I had this moment in summer school at Concordia where this person just turned around. I was sitting there; it was the first day of school, and this person turned around and says, "Hey, you know what I'd like right now? Uh, a gefilte fish sandwich." And I was like, first of all, that's weird. Nobody wants gefilte fish. <laughs> Second of all, wants it on a sandwich. It feels like a really uh, bizarre sort of pickup line, like where they're yeah. trying to pick you up or something. No, like, it hey, was their way. Moved? It was bageling. It was okay. the ultimate. And so to me, it's always the gefilte fish moment. When mm. I say think bageling, it's like, yes, right. of course, that's your way of like getting it in there and like, oh, yes, gefilte fish. Not to appropriate uh, someone else's story, but I'm going to. I'm sorry if I'm messing it up. But um, my sister-in-law has a great story about uh, someone who wasn't Jewish who really had, like, this important question that she needed to ask a Jew. And the question was, does matzah really make you constipated? Mm. And, and your answer <laughs> was? The, wait, your answer me. was? What, what, her was, answer? Well, she was like, <laughs> yes, because this person, like, worked, I think, in a hospital. And during Passover season, everyone was really constipated in, at the Jewish General Hospital or something like that. And she was like, is this a myth or is this real? And then she was like, yep, it's real. So I think that, there you go. That, that's the opposite story. The frozen colon, as oh. a baby. <laughs> well, maybe we should get back to our, our next guest. Um. I want to throw a couple of arts people in there. Um, right. Start with Nathan Englander, who is a wonderful author from New York, um, who has now relocated to Toronto, and uh, followed up with Lisa Rubin. You guys know Lisa Rubin? Yeah, we do. Let's talk about what she has Siegel. to say. Uh, hi, everyone. Chag Sameach. It's Nathan Englander. Uh, I write books, or I did before COVID, but I'm writing them again now. Uh, I'm very loyal to uh, the Brooklyn that I left for Toronto, and... Uh, my family's Brooklyn roots, but I think I'll tell a Jersey story. So yes, I love everybody's, uh, everyone have all kinds of uh, minhagim and traditions that are specific to their home. I've done a lot of seders with a lot of people. I love being with my family or dragging my family elsewhere. But um, I did years, years, years in Jersey with my buddy, Joe Weiss. Uh, so here's a Weiss family story from, you know, good old Newark, all the Jews who showed up there after the war. Um, the Weisses via Hungary, which they're quite proud of. I love me some Toto Kapishta. Anyway, during the Seder, when it's time for Kos Eliyahu for Elijah's cup, you go open the door and you say Baruch Haba, um, welcoming Elijah into the home, very ghostly. Um, so yes, uh, apparently someone in the building, Tilly, was very, very pregnant at the time uh, of the Seders, and I guess uh, her water broke and she went into labor uh, during Seder and came there for help. So they opened the door, and instead of um, saying Baruch Haba, the person who opened the door said, Baruch Habu, Tilly is due. 
that's how the story goes. Uh, I guess they helped her. She had the baby who's, as I said, probably a, a grandmother at this point or a great grandmother or father, or I don't know the story of Tilly. All I know is that I thought it was awesome that like 40, 50, 60 years later uh, in New Jersey, in Parsippany, far from Newark, that uh, all of us would every year at Seder, I did it with them many times, open the door and instead of, yeah, Baruch Haba, we'd all scream, you know, all 20, 30, 40 of us, Baruch Habu, Tilly is due. There's an anecdote and it's not even mine. Hi, this is Lisa Rubin, Artistic and Executive Director of the Siegel Center for Performing Arts, wishing you a happy Passover. At this time as Passover is upon us, I can't help but think of community and how important our collective Jewish family is at the moment, especially coming out of years of isolation. It makes me think of all the times I was traveling and I wasn't able to be with my family during the Seder. One time I was living in Israel and I was invited to a home in Jerusalem and it was a family of young children and all was going well until I realized that it was going to be a very long night. I'd never experienced a Seder that lasted so long and I remember very vividly trying to keep my eyes open at the table. Then there was this other time I was living in Italy and I spent the Seder at the Chabad family in Florence. And that was special because it was there that we connected with Jews from really all over the world, from Europe, from Israel, from New York. And so it really didn't matter if we couldn't be with our families. We were with our Jewish family. And now in Montreal, we're in the process of rehearsing a new musical with our Israeli collaborators. And this time, the director and the writer from Israel are away from their families, and they are coming to my house. And I can't help but think what an honor it is to have them with us and that no matter what, we are a family even when we are away from home. This is definitely not lost on me this year the power of community, and the family that goes beyond borders. L'shana habav b'yerushalayim. Chag Sameach. So one of the fondest memories I have of, of Passover and, and Seders is um, my family and I would go out to Palm Springs and visit uh, my grandparents, and usually my cousins would come, so we'd have a, a big extended family there. And uh, I have four younger brothers, and, and so we were, we we're all very close and, and tight-knit. Uh, and like I said, we go out to Palm Springs for, for Passover and we have a Seder and, and my grandfather um, always, you know, loved hiding the Afikoman and, and putting it in different places. And as kids, we still love, uh, there's eight, gran uh, eight grandchildren, so the eight of us would, would run around and looking for the, the Afikoman and it was always, um, it was always fun to see who the winner would be. And, uh, and so that was something that we really enjoyed and, and just being together as a family um, for the Seders and doing it you know, outside of Toronto where I grew up and doing it in a place like uh, California, Palm Springs, where it's nice out and um, just family time is, is something that was, you know, always important to me and, and always a part of, you know, our Seders. I'm Ezra Shankin, the Chief Executive Officer at the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver. One of my favorite Passover memories is doing a Passover Seder. I must have been eight or nine, maybe even seven years old. Uh, in Laredo, Texas, on the border of Mexico, where my grandmother lived and a lot of my father's extended family. It was really a unique experience to go down there as a kid who grew up in New Jersey, uh, to go down to Laredo, Texas. And I remember in my grandmother's 
itty bitty little apartment. There was a table that went all the way through the apartment lined with family members who are mostly all passed by now. And it was such an experience. I was climbing under the table and there was my great grandmother sitting at the end of the table in her chair. And everybody was coming together for the Passover Seder there on the border of Mexico in Texas. That was an amazing experience. The other experience that I find to be really meaningful was in university. Later on, I was president of my Hillel, and I had the chance to do a Passover Seder with the president of our university, Walter Harrison, uh, who was Jewish, is Jewish, and was a great supporter of our, of our Hillel. But as a student, I had such pride in doing the Passover Seder side by side with the president of the university. It was such an incredible, incredible experience. And the last Seder that I'll bring up is the one that I've done here. And that was a Seder that I was able to do before the pandemic with the mayor of Vancouver, Gregor Robertson, and the city staff and city managers. And during that Seder, with rabbis around the table and community members around the table, we did Chad Gad Yah with sound effects. And the mayor was the two Zuzim. And every time that it went around and got back to the mayor and said two Zuzim, he went clink, clink. And I just remember that to this day, how he stayed with us for the entire Seder till 10, 10.30 at night and just hung out and had, had this experience, experience with us. Uh, and that was truly, truly meaningful. That was Nathan Englander and Lisa Rubin, followed by Edmonton Oilers' Zach Hyman and Ezra Shankin of the Vancouver Federation. Where's the furthest you've been for Passover? Does Israel count? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it, I mean, it's like the closest in a sense. It's like the oh, spiritual home for so Passover. Close to home. Um, I've literally only had two Passovers away from Montreal ever. And they were both in Vancouver. One was the beginning of the pandemic and one was like a few years before. So it's very hard for me to be away from my family during that time. Even after like that first time, I was like, never again. And then the pandemic hit and I literally couldn't come in. So... You know, I mean, this is my first Passover back home also since COVID hit too. So I'm really mm. looking, I'm really excited and looking forward to being back with my family. Um, but Israel was very special for the Seder itself. I was with a group of people and actually this even ties in with Lisa. I was, I approached her because I was working at the Siegel as an usher at the time. And I told her I really wanted to go to Israel for six months and study. And she was so supportive of the idea. She introduced me to Mr. Siegel. We, 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 we sat, we got together. We had a conversation about what I wanted to achieve and my goals there. And she was instrumental in, in allowing me and helping me to go to Israel for six months. So, you know, kola kavod. Thank you, Lisa, for everything. And, and um, what a wonderful experience I was able to have there. I wanted to bring it back to the uh, first of those two recordings, yeah. talking about the Eliyahu, because for the longest time in my childhood, I did not know how, like, Eliyahu was drinking from the cup. And then when I got to a certain age, I sat at the table, and then the time came, and all the kids ran to the door, and then I saw all the parents just shaking the table, and I was like, yeah. what? Yeah. I thought it was real. <laughs> I really thought he came. <laughs> I feel like that's our version of Santa Claus, Santa. right? So it's like I'm surrounded by all these kids. It's like, well, you. Uh, when did you know Santa Claus didn't exist? Because for me, Santa Claus never existed. But it was the shaking of the Eliyahu table that I remember the first time I said, yeah. wait, wait, they're not real? Like, this is what the adults do. They shake the table. And I was like, but like, we're not supposed to see him anyway. Like, he's like a spirit. So it's like, why, why would you make it feel like it's really not real? Because then if there was no shaking, then it's just like, oh, do you feel that wave? Okay, it's there. It's gone. You know? So this is famous Israeli uh, sketch comedy show, the equivalent, I guess you say, Saturday Night Live. Shatera Tov. 
Or no? No, the other one. Um, anyways, so they um, they have this bit, which is exactly that, where this kid goes to his dad. And he goes, Dad, Dad, what's Santa Claus? And the, the dad goes, oh, that's this, like, crazy, like, stupid thing that the non-Jews believe in, the Goyim believe in, that there's this one guy that can go to every house in the whole world in one night right and like give gifts to all the kids in that one night and the kid goes yeah but dad but dad what about like we believe in eliyahu hanavi right elijah the prophet and the dad looks at his kid he goes son don't be silly we're only 0.2 percent of the population (laughs) he can do it in one night it's very easy bounces from tel aviv jerusalem to new york Montreal, Calgary, we got it. It's Good. fine. Yeah. So yeah, so in that sense, Elijah the prophet can can handle anything. Yeah. Um, What's the furthest you've been for a seder? I so I'm married to a clergy, right? I'm, I'm clergy, but I'm married to the clergy, and that the job of the clergy is to be in town. Ah. So we so not far. Uh, we don't get anywhere. Um, since I'm an adult, right? I'm saying like we got married in 2006. I don't think we have not hosted a Seder mm. since then. Um, I cooked two Seders. I, uh, Montreal, the Charchemayim, where my wife is a clergy member, often had um, hosted Seders for the people that wanted to be there. So we would host one of those. So I wouldn't oh, have wow. to cook that one. Um, but ultimately, I'm either hosting it at home or at mm-hmm. the synagogue. I got I got Seders down to a pat. Like, I haven't start, started cooking yet. We're recording this on Wednesday night. Um, I will probably start cooking tomorrow evening and Friday and we'll get two seders done and we'll be fine. Wow, that's um, impressive. But that's just, it's practice. It's uh, mm-hmm. exercising a muscle. You guys can probably have the same thing when it comes to theater, right? If I gave you a script and I said, tomorrow night, you've got to do this. No. You can make I this work. I have heard no. stories about stuff like that, David. I've had friends who were like last minute, someone got sick or something and then they got asked to stand in and they were like something turned on in their brain and they were able to actually be off book because of the pressure. The fear. The fear of everyone staring at you. And if you don't get it right, you're going to run off crying to there the corner. Go. So that's the Seder, yeah. right? I know that I have people coming to my house and you've got to prepare a meal. To get it done. And you've got yeah. to prepare other stuff. And that's it. But for the most part, we host. Um, we did have a great year in Israel. Um, Rachel's grandmother uh, wanted one year that the whole family would be in Israel. And we were engaged that year. So the whole family went to Israel because I was engaged to the family. We got I got to go to Israel. Um, and we had a really memorable Passover that sure. year. Um, what I remember the most was that all of the restaurants, and clearly, yes, the, everything else was wonderful and great and the family was wonderful. But the restaurants are all open in Passover like in Israel, right? They're all there. And you just got to like show up. And like you go and you get a bottle of wine because wine is kosher for Passover. And I ordered a thick slice of foie gras grilled <laughs> and it's got served on a matzah. Is foie gras it's a, kosher? Yes. Yes. We that. can talk about that another okay. time. Not for Passover. But yeah, it was great. It was even a pate. It was grilled slices. Like I'm... Alana's giving us these faces. She's not I don't much know of a I meat feel, person. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that, but good for you. I'm yeah, happy for you. I just pass like in Israel, Pesach feels like, oh, it's another holiday and everybody's here and we can do whatever right. we want. You know what I do have I, I do have to admit something and it's true. I was thinking of I was I was saying I was in Israel for, for Pesach. That's actually not true. I decided to take a week off and go to Greece instead when it was the Passover holiday. So 
Sorry. Sure. Sorry. Is this the Stinson Stetson thing all over again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, I need to, <laughs> to qualify this. I decided I, I needed to run away and go on the beach. Who's next? Let's hear from Evan Solomon Ooh. and Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole. Passover is one of my favorite holidays, not just because of the Seder, where we always have two Seders, obviously, for each side of the family. They're different Seders. We dress up in some of them. We reenact the entire story. The kids sing the four questions. I remember doing it when I was a kid. I remember my kids doing it. We have finger puppets for all the plagues. My dad passed away in November, and he loved the satyrs. And I have so many fond memories of him leading us through the satyrs. And we have a couple of key memories. At the end of the satyr, we always do, who knows one? I know one, and it's a race. And we always race. And then we always bang our hands, an only kid, an only kid, my father bought for two Zuzim, an only kid, an only kid. So we have traditional uh, things that we've been doing for generations and generations going back to my grandparents. So there's so many aspects of the Passover Seder that I love um, and the story of it. I remember when my Aunt Helen, you know, 25, 30 years ago, put an orange on the Seder plate because as a rabbi said, a woman leading the Seder would be like an orange on the Seder plate. We've always had an orange on our Seder plate since then. So family memories. The thing I love though about Passover the most, it's the only religious holiday that celebrates the release from slavery. And it's genuinely about freedom. And think about that in the context of Ukraine right now and tyranny. And so it's so relevant and the other thing I love about it is the four questions where this entire elaborate dinner is prepared and yet it's the youngest, most vulnerable person that stops the train and urges the, the most powerful people at the Seder, the parents, why is this night different than all other nights? Why do we eat matzah? Why do we eat maror? In other words, it doesn't matter how young you are, you have the power to ask a question the power to stop something, the power to question. And the power to question is the key to freedom. And that's what I love about Passover. And, and, and I, I love it so much. And I look forward to the Seders this year. Happy Pesach, everyone. Shalom. I'm Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole, Rabbi Emeritus of Beth Tzedek Congregation in Toronto. While Pesach is often thought of as a time of the ingathering of our families, when people come sometimes from far distances in order to be together, with their family. Pesach can also be marked and can be memorable when one is alone. I remember growing up in Chicago with my single mother, Rachel, of cleaning the house and of cooking and of sitting down to Seder with her. She brought, of course, memories from Europe, melodies from her home, and I brought what I had learned in Hebrew school. We sat together, and those Pesachim, those Seder nights, were memorable for me. They're part of what created who I am. The Talmud says that if one has no child to ask the four questions or no partner, one should even ask oneself. And I think that there is this idea here that we are never really alone. We sit with our ancestors. As Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel taught, I am never alone because I am part of a people. And we sing at the end of Adon Olam, Adonai li below ira. The eternal is with me and I shall not fear. So wherever you are for Pesach, whether you are alone with one other person or in a large group, we bring our memories, not only of our own personal experiences, but of the historical experience of the Jewish people. 
we sit with all of our ancestors and we sit with God who is always there for us. Best wishes for a Chag Sameach Vikasher. Nothing like getting COVID right before the Seders to call in to reflection what does it mean to be free and what does it mean to be bound. You know, the Seder is supposed to be this spiritual technology that actually brings us through a process of tightness and liberation. Um, and it's always so interesting and throughout COVID, I think so many of us have felt this is what does it look like to not only reimagine the Seder, but to go with the, you know, to roll with the punches of what, what the world, what our bodies, what circumstance offers and to, you know, to adjust accordingly and to, to do Seders in a way that are so different than how we may have imagined them. And I know that there's so many people in this world today that are so deeply bound, not simply by, <coughs> excuse me, some by COVID, some by other illness, some by um, actual war and slavery. You know, we look to the Ukraine right now, we look to, we, we look around the world and, and we see sort of suffering and oppression and exploitation all over the place. Um, and sometimes there's a, you know, an invitation and a, a call in of like, what is, what is your little glimpse into freedom this year? What is it for you? And if that's like a deep breath, if that's a relaxation, if that's, you know, slowing down and, um, or if that's, you know, dedicating one's life to, um, to fighting for climate justice and for fighting against, you know, for fighting for racial justice, wherever I would say that if I could invite us all in together to something, it would be listen to like what your body is calling you into this year. Take it seriously. Listen deeply, not from the mind, but from the body. What does the body need? What, what nutrients? What nourishment? What rest? What pleasure? What touch? You know? What safety? What, what feels safe for you wherever you are, given the, you know, the various degrees of privilege we all have? And really let that be a sort of nourishing, freeing, redemptive experience so that everyone has the energy to fight towards, fight for the liberation of all people all over the world. And, and when we care about the community, I think one of the best ways to do that is to be very deeply in integrity with the self so that we can show up in solidarity, in collaboration, um, and envision you know, what, what redemption looks like on the spiritual, on the political, on the ecological, on the cosmic levels. Chag That was Evan Solomon, Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole, and Rabbi Bluth. What are some things that you guys do that are timely because they're very much related to your families, but that connect to something in terms of a bigger picture? I'm not entirely sure what you mean, Abby. Do you want to give an example? I mean, there are great examples there where like, you know, people feel the need to sing and these songs year mm-hmm. in, year in, year in, um, but, they, but they mean something bigger and they connect us to our families. They connect us to our histories no matter how little it is, we get to say, I do this thing with my mom, with my parents, with the extended family at the Seder. And yet that is part of what their parents did and their parents did and their parents did. And there's a connection there. Um, and sometimes individual family customs are yeah. are big, For even sure. though they're very small. Yeah. Well, my family has a tradition of in the part where some people dip like a potato in salt water or the egg, we actually have a soup. So um, people who aren't part of my family tend to not like it, but we love it. 
Um, it's basically salt water, onion, and egg, and it's all like mashed together. And it's like a salt watery kind of eggy soup with onion inside, which is all the ingredients that are in it. So it makes sense. Um, and it's been passed down from Eastern Europe and my family's always done it. And it's something that we always used to like help my bubby make. And now we help my mom make. And if it's not like the right amount of saltiness, we like are get mad at whoever made it. And you're like, ah, you messed up the egg soup. We got to fix it for next year. So that's like a big thing. And the peppery gefilte fish, I feel like are my family's two like Passover staple items. How about you, David? I was thinking of this and I think what has really been important to me for our seders at home was um, when I was going to school, all my friends were non-Jews, right? Um, and my mom and my dad were so open to inviting them for, for the seders. And that meant so much to me where our friends were just eager to learn. And it was always very important that these people, our friendship grew because they were invited to this very important religious and cultural dinner that we got to share so much. And my parents opened their house to my friends and and got to share this experience with the larger community. And I think that has always been a tradition where really opening the door and inviting the stranger in was always a very important thing in my household. Not to go back to the egg soup, but just to give you a full picture, it's not warm because that sounds really gross. It's, <laughs> you have to clarify it's this. It's cold. It's cold soup. You like refrigerate it in these big white tubs. Not making it any better. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not everyone's thing, but we love it. Abby, what about you? This is the moment where, um, you know, I'm listening to David and I'm like, yes, this is exactly <laughs> the tension. No, but hold on. It's like, this is the tension between the universal and the particularist, yes. right? Yeah. It's Passover is um, an, a night when we celebrate our particularism. This is the founding of our nation as a nation. When we got to say we are leaving the bonds of a certain people and we are emerging as our own people on the world stage. And so in some way, it is the night when we get to say, this is who we are. It's our birthday as a nation. And there's always this tension within the rabbinic world and in the modern world of how we balance that with the universalist tendency to go and say, we want to share this with everybody. Right. Um, and in some way, that's that's wonderful to be able to share it with people. But how do you balance that you know, that tension between saying this is for everybody versus saying this is for us and this is our people. And to me, one of the great ways that you can balance and say this is for us is to serve people cold potato soup and spicy gefilte fish and say, hey, you're welcome to be part of our night. Egg soup? But like but anyway. spicy eggs, spicy. I think the egg spicy egg cold Whatever soup is, would just whole thing, push people away you're more welcome than anything. To, exactly. You're welcome to join us but as long really as you're willing weird. to eat this food. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, no, it's more than that. It's, you know, we do want to be universalists, but we do also have these particularist evenings. And I think that the Seder is that night where we get to say, you're welcome to be part of our community, um, but this is our night with our foods, with our ideas, and with our um, values. And we're not interested in necessarily diluting those values for you. Mm. Um, but if you believe in those values, they are here for you and you know, what I think up to it. And I, what, what I think it did is, is it made me prouder to, to share this tradition and this culture and this heritage. It made me prouder to be a Jew saying, you know, these are my roots. This is what I have going on that I am willing to share this with, with outsiders in a sense that I felt confident in it. And I felt so I could, confident that you got a, a goy boyfriend. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. 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 What are your very confident. I'm actually yes. really. I was gonna ask what your satyrs look like. Like, how do you make it accessible with like an interface audience? Um. So I'm like John's been over. John has come for Passover satyrs in Montreal before. How do we make it accessible? I I can't. I don't see it any other way but accessible in a sense where we read through it. My mom has her feminist Haggadah. We have the orange at the Seder it, itself. It's a fun, open, ask any questions kind of thing. Like, what does this symbolize? What does this mean? And in a sense, that's great for ourselves to remind ourselves what it means and the importance and the values that we share rather than just trugging along, saying the things we've said mm-hmm. a thousand times. We get to re-explain it to ourselves of the importance because there is a stranger amongst us, I think. And and I think that ups the value of the Seder. Right. Well, I guess that's what it's also supposed to be with the children, too. Like, the children asking questions has that similar thing. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the children being part of it is the idea that there's always a stranger. And kids don't always have the institutional memory that mm-hmm. we have. And so when we go and say that the whole point of the Seder is that the kids should be able to ask questions, it's to remind ourselves that we have this knowledge, but other people don't always have that knowledge. And the kids are this memory, this memory that needs to get filled for the future generations. And to be able to say, we're strangers everywhere. Wherever we're going to go, we are strangers in Canada, we're strangers in the US, we're strangers in Western Europe, we're strangers in Eastern Europe. And the Seder is this annual reenactment of saying, yes, we belong to this you know, population of Jews globally, but we're also part of this stranger, this other population, wherever it is that we live. And that the Seder helps us navigate that tension. Um, I'd like to, you know, play something from uh, David Kaufman, who's a professor of Jewish studies at York University, you know, and addresses some of that. And then uh, we'll go on to, uh, you know, Selena Robinson, who's another politician from Vancouver. I'm David Kaufman, the J. Richard Schiff Chair for the Study of Canadian Jewry at York University. Over the past few years, as my siblings and cousins have taken over leading and hosting our family seders from our parents' generation, we've picked a theme or a mode around which our seders have been organized. So we divide up the major parts of the seder and then pre-assign couples or families so that they can prepare something to present when the time comes. So one year we did Pesach the musical, where people made up hilarious and actually really brilliant musical theater renditions of, you know, Allah Ma'anya or, you know, busting out the four questions with like a lot more questions and with song and dance. Um, The first COVID Pesach, we did an all digital Seder where we incorporated Kahoot quizzes and whiteboards and CapCut trailers and all kinds of devices and software that will hopefully never be part of our Seder again, but it was really cool. But my favorite over the past few years was the Moses Seder, uh, whose point of departure was the curious fact that the traditional Haggadah leaves Moses out of the Exodus story altogether, even though he plays a pretty significant role. So we asked everyone to present their chunk of the Haggadah as if Moses were actually central to it. And it was fascinating. Uh, You know, we got not the four children, but the four Moseses, and we got Moses at the Beit Midrash, you know, debating with the Tanaim what you need to do to fulfill the obligation of Pesach. Um, one of family even reinterpreted the foods on the Seder plate as parts of the Moses experience. Um, it was awesome. My favorite Pesach story. Well, I think 
uh, I have many. Um, everything from Uncle Abe sitting with the, at the kids' table from the time I was very young, and we would have these 40 to 50 person seders with my great grandparents at the helm, um, hosted by my great aunt and so many people, to my mom um, cross stitching a tablecloth that became the family Seder tablecloth that now I have. It graces my uh, Seder table. Um, and it is covered over the years with uh, wine stains and haroset stains and sweet and sour meatball stains. And that my son uh, used at his recent wedding for the chuppah. Um, my mom passed away a number of years ago, so making sure that her legacy, uh, her Pesach legacy um, was present at the wedding was also an important memory. But when I think about my own a Seder table, I think, uh, and the things that I love about it um, is the two action figures that I have. One is Moshe Rabbeinu, and the other one is um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They're both action figures. They sit on my Seder table um, because they both speak about uh, the work that we have to do so that everyone is free and the role that they have in leadership. Uh, Moshe had a style of leadership, trying to convince an entire peoples to flee um, and to follow him. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who really, who changed the law, changed the face of equality, uh, pursued justice her entire life and did it very differently than, than, than Moshe did. And so, uh, they grace my table every year, uh, reminding us all of the work that we need to do, the kind of leadership uh, that we need could take many different forms. And, uh, and they still continue to inspire me today. your Moses at the Seder table? Who's the person that may not be there but is clearly like overseeing and creating a set of values? Can they be there? I don't know if I have a is not no, there version. The idea is they could, sure. <laughs> I mean, to me, like my grandfather, especially because he's the only one left from all of my grandparents, um, I always kind of picture him at the head of our Passover table from when I was younger because we used to do it at my grandparents and they had like literally three or four tables and people would come in from out of town. And it was like all the extended family and I was a little kid and we'd be running around and matzah and afikomen and all this stuff. And I feel like maybe because he has a beard, I see when he said Moses, I was like, that's, that's him. But um, I don't have an answer to your Invisible version. All I know of that. about all I know about your grandfather is that every year, um, Eric, your um, your mom's husband, who is actually a Lou Jewelers, which we can talk about at another point in time, asks me every year, "I need a bottle of vodka." Yes, because I can't give this person tequila and I can't give this person Slivovitz. This individual needs a bottle of vodka for Passover in order to make things work. Um, is this the uh, the spirit that guides the seder? Vodka? The, the vodka? I don't I don't think <laughs> I've seen him have vodka at the Seder, but he does have it every week before Shabbat. It's like a ritual. Oh, and important. all the men drink it like it's water. I it's have shared terrifying. Vodka with I must say. Well, there you go. I cannot get into that. It's way too strong for me. But basically anyone who joins our family has to learn how to stomach like sipping vodka like water. Um, has this um, individual who um, <laughs> is currently uh, debating Fairmount versus St. Vieter Bagels oh, yes. with vodka. Oh, yes. And he's not a huge drinker. And I was like, I'm just letting you know when you meet my grandfather, you're going to have to have vodka. And he's like, a, he's a trooper. He did it. He's been welcomed into the family yeah. through the vodka. There you go. 
Who's the guiding spirit of your family? Well, I, Seder. Think, I think it's similar. It's like the matriarchs and the patriarchs of the family. It really goes to my bubby, bubby uh, Lila Rapkin, who it's the same question. It's like when she passes away, she is, is the glue that holds the cousins and the family together. And what happens when that person disappears from the Seder table itself? Um, what will we be left with? And then I feel like it's up to the next generation to take on these challenges. And I think this is a question that the younger people are really sort of wondering, how are we going to move forward and how are we going to keep the family unit together once this older generation goes away? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot too, especially because we live in a time now where people are really spreading out. It's not the old family structure where everyone lives in the same village, so it's very easy. Like even now, like my partner's family lives in Toronto and my family's in Montreal. So it's like this constant thing that I realize like, oh, okay, so how's this going to work? Like we're going to have to just take turns every year. Um, And I'm sure it's even more complicated when you have family all over the world, in Israel, in Europe, wherever. Yeah, so if I had to say the guiding spirit of our family Seder, it's this exact idea. The idea that if you're not carrying things forward, then you're stuck in the past. You know, when we moved here uh, to Montreal, I moved back and my wife moved here with our kids. Um, I schlepped my American family back to Canada. You saved them. I Absolutely, for sure, without a doubt. Um, this was their exodus moment. Um, you should have seen them cross the the sea right at the border, <laughs> wading up to their necks in U.S. Customs and Border Patrol until and, the sea split. Uh-huh. Um, anyways, um, I had a colleague who said, you know, Montreal is unique in that it was the first city that he'd ever lived in where there were people under 60 who had never hosted a Pesach Seder. Because you go to Bubby's house. Yes. Everybody goes to Bubby and Sadie. Why wouldn't... Bubby's great. She's she's happy. She loves to host. And the whole family goes there. And Rachel's first instinct was, yeah, but that means that there are people who are 60. And 60 is not a young age who have never hosted a Pesach Seder. That means that when Bubby and Zadie go on to the next world, make a trip to Paperman horizontally... Um, <laughs> that was very dark. <laughs> but very are, you, are you in that mindset because you came from a funeral? Uh, anyway. <laughs> but like when that happens, yes. then in some way, this individual or the next patriarch or matriarch of the family has witnessed decades of satyrs, but has never hosted it themselves. And we were very consciously thinking about this. And we said, you know what? Yes, in some way, it's our job. My wife is a, is a clergy member of a synagogue, so we're going to host people for seders. But it's just as much about our kids being able to see that we don't go to Bubby and Zadie. Religion, Judaism, doesn't live with Bubby and Zadie or with Saba and Safta. Religion lives in our home. Shabbat lives in our home, and we do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that I would say is, that's a little uncommon, a lot in the Jewish community. It's problematic that it's so uncommon. It is, you're right. So you, my challenge to you guys, yes, Alana, David, next year, you're going to be married, David, yes. I, right? Yeah. Alana, maybe, maybe, I don't know. You never know. You never know. You never know. Um, maybe next year is the year that you guys host a Seder for your colleagues, for your friends, maybe not necessarily for family, where you go to, you get to go and say, listen, there's nothing wrong with the family Seder. I love it. It's important. But sometimes we need to show this generation that Judaism lives with us and not just with that previous generation. Um, and that that's a fundamentally important part of carrying it along 
and yeah. bring him. And, and there's a line in the Seder, right? That like that you have to tell the next generation that it is because of this that I leave, uh, that I have gone, we, we left Egypt, that we are moving forward, that we are doing this, that this is a living tradition. And it's not just a tradition that lives with our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. There, there is definitely something very empowering and um, I'm going to create a word, adultifying, um, about doing the things that your parents did Jewishly for the first time. Because in the past two years, when I moved into the Vancouver Moisha house, I started hosting Shabbat dinners and I'd never had people over um, and made like Mm -hmm. a full Shabbat meal in my life. And I was calling my mom and my aunt and getting recipes and doing things that my grandmother cooks and my mom cooks and all those people. And it really made me feel like a grown up. I was like, wow, I'm actually doing this on my own. And the same with Passover things. That's why the other day I told my mom, like, I want to learn the spicy gefilte fish recipe. And like, I, I still have never made a chicken soup. And I feel like I want to know how to do that because my brother knows he got the recipe. I haven't tried that yet. That sounds like the next challenge for you. I think it is. It's a great segue to uh, closing things up. And um, how is this nachas different from all other nachas? (laughs) Well, for our nachas this week, maybe we can share with everybody a Seder tip, a song, something to bring into their Seder, right? For this year, for next year, for the year beyond. Alana... If you had a tip, because you clearly, you, you, you're thinking about this right now, right? Something that you've done to actually own the Seder in a way that is not just, I'm going to a Seder that is of a previous generation. What would you say? So from experience, I will say, ask the kids at the table to contribute. Because I remember being a little kid in preschool, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, that I knew all the songs. Because in Jewish school, if your kid's going to afternoon school or day school, they're learning a ton of music and anecdotes and like little stories or like puppet shows or anything like that. And give them a space to share that with all of your guests. Because as a kid, that was really what made me feel like I was part of the Seder. David, how do you own the Seder? We've talked about this previously on the podcast about leaning a bit more into the spirituality of Judaism. And I think how one way we can move forward with the next generation is to bring the spirituality of Judaism more to the Seder table itself. So rather than talk about some of the stuff where we feel like we're doing it by rote, I would like to look a little bit more into what is the spiritual aspect of this ritual that we've done? What can we look into from the past, from our traditions, and find where we can find a bit of that mysticism involved in this in this holiday? Mm-hmm. I don't have a good answer for you yet. There's a lot of mysticism within the holiday itself. I mean, the Kabbalists definitely spent a lot of time on Passover and on this idea of what Passover was about. And uh, tapping into that is is great. I really appreciate that. Hmm. How about you, Abby? Um, I think, you know, I'm going to try to split the difference between the two of you in a, in a very practical way and to sort of say, you know, there's a lot of... I'll, I'll give a great example. What do you guys... What's something new that you guys put on your Seder plate? I actually Other don't. than the classics. I've never put anything else on my Seder plate. Okay. And what do you do, David? Well, the orange has been there for several years. Why do you put an orange on the Seder plate? To welcome everyone who felt that they never really belonged at the Seder, and you know, including the queer community. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of discussions around that. Is there anything else that you put on? I can't think of anything. Avi, do you put anything else on? We don't. 
Um, but at the end of the day, we still also do interesting new things at the Seder. Maybe, maybe not necessarily on the Seder plate itself, mm-hmm. but we either create new customs within our family or we absorb different ideas. And my tip, my way of like dealing with the Seder is just as much uh, the rest of Judaism as it is for the Seder itself. And it's being aware of that tension of saying... I want to do something to honor newness, to honor something that is modern and contemporary and to recognize that my Judaism evolves with mm-hmm. time, but also to say, I'm not here to just throw at everything that is, you know, somewhat antiquated or that doesn't feel right to me and put in exclusively new ideas and new customs, mm-hmm. right? It's always about living within that tension. And the Seder is the perfect moment because there's so many new customs and there's so many old customs and you get to say to yourself, what am I pulling from tradition and how do I preserve that? And how do I honor anything new and bring those pieces and ideas mm-hmm into that newness also. Um, and it could be something tiny, like, and we, I don't know if we talked about it in our Seder boot camp. boot camp or other places, throwing um, marshmallows uh, during the, when we mentioned hail. hail, right? And the kids love that. Or finding some other new custom. My wife, when it comes to uh, pour thy wrath upon the nations, right? Which is like this questionable, interesting, discuss, you know, uh, paragraph that we dis- we mention after the... Um, the the Birkat Amazon and that's when we opened the door for Elijah and some people have a hard time with it because we don't want to discuss pouring wrath onto the other nations Um, she has this custom where she sings it to uh, Glory Hallelujah (laughs) and it's like from her grandmother I'm like okay well we're gonna do that that's fine I'm like Let's do that. And it goes all the way through. I'm like, yes, that's a new custom. That's interesting. We're going to reclaim this idea and make it some way our own. You know, I, I think that exist in that tension is really important. Yeah. For the and, be, and being very intentional about that. Yeah. Well, honestly, after the boot camp, it really made me think about Passover because I'm a super nostalgic person. So for me, it's always like, if it's not the way my family does it, I don't, I don't want to do it. And then ha- I'm hearing how you were encouraging the people who came to the Passover boot camp to like make it their own and kind of how you try to make it new, like mm-hmm. you were just saying, really did actually make me think, okay, maybe when I'm hosting my own seders, like when I have my own family, what are the ways that I want to make it different? I don't have answers yet, but it made me think like it doesn't always have to maybe be the same way that I always did it. It feels like there's less pressure on you when you can take the stuff that you remember as important to you in the tradition, but you can mm-hmm. bend those stuff and you can make it your own at the same time. You don't have to follow it exactly the way mom, dad, Bubby and Zadie did it. Yeah. Well, I think we're uh, just about our Chagadya moment for the Seder, um, our kid for Tuzuzim. And uh, it's time to wrap things up. Oh. Uh, do you have any last um, songs, ideas, last bits that you want to share before this is very, we wrap it up? This is very controversial. My boyfriend and I um, had an argument about this recently. My family has a tradition um, where, well, apparently when we were younger, we did Chagadya in like the original language. And we also did it in English as a competition. These days, we tend to skip the Aramaic version and go straight to the English. And every single verse, it goes faster and faster and faster. And I always win. And at the end, it's just like a really fun way to end the Seder. Cause you're like, we do the whole thing and everyone's like really tired. Half the people are like asleep. And then it just like me, my grandfather and whoever else is still like really into it. And then we just see who can like do it the fastest. And it's great. 
But you, I'm down with that. You need like this one particular um, addition though, like the the classic like yellow and brown sure. one. That's the one that has the right English translation for the song to work. <laughs> okay. Just saying. Done. We always skipped Chagadia, I think because I never really learned it in in uh, in kindergarten. We always ended with Echad Miodeya. That's the one we would sing. But talking about this, I was just having flashes of the Seder because I was picked up at the airport today. It felt like we were going through the exodus because as everyone knows in Montreal, the Dakari gets backed up around rush hour time. <laughs> and as my parents came to pick me up and they were fighting and arguing which way to get off and, duh, 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 and stop interrupting me back and forth, it felt like we were heading towards our liberation as we passed, passed over the Dakari Expressway and landed safely at home. Well, on that note... Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Pesach 2022, Passover 5782. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project for the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. Wishing you a happy, happy Passover! Passover.